Well, let me begin with a story. I actually heard this many years ago, but I still have it in my files. Stories told of a man who was applying for church membership in a small little church. And to become a member of that church, you had to sit before a membership committee and they would question you. All right. So they said, thank you for joining us. Uh, could you please tell us what part of the Bible you like the best? And the man said, uh, the New Testament. And they said, what book of the New Testament do you like the best? And he said, uh, the book of parables. And they said, well, could you tell us one of the parables? And he said, sure. He said, once upon a time, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. And the thorns grew up and choked the man. And they went on and met the Queen of Sheba. And she gave that man a thousand talents of silver and a hundred changes of raiment. And he got in his chariot and he drove furiously. And as he was driving along under a big tree, his hair got caught in a limb and left him hanging there. And he hung there many days and many nights. And the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. And one night while he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah comes along and cuts off his hair. And he fell on stony ground. And it began to rain, and it rained forty days and forty nights. And he hid himself in a cave. Later he went on and he met a man who said, Come in and take supper with me. But he said, I can't come in, for I have married a wife. And the man went out into the highways and the byways, and he compelled him to come in. He came to Jerusalem, and he saw Queen Jezebel sitting high and lifted up in a window of the wall. When she saw him, she laughed, and he said, Throw her down out of there. And they threw her down. And he said, Throw her down again. And they threw her down seventy times seven times. And the fragments which they picked up filled twelve baskets full. Now whose wife will she be on the day of judgment? The membership committee agreed that this was indeed a knowledgeable candidate, and they made him the pastor. <laughs> All right. Now, what's funny is if you read that in um, some churches, they wouldn't laugh because they would go, what's wrong with that, right? They would go, yeah, the, that's what the Bible says, right? So we're going to talk about um, the Bible today as a spiritual discipline Last week, we talked about sacraments, or as Baptists like to say, ordinances. And we talked about how we can use water and bread and wine to draw us closer to Christ. And today, we're going to talk about Bible intake as a spiritual discipline. Now, let me just remind you, um, spiritual disciplines do not make you more holy. You go, what? Then why do them? Spiritual disciplines, and I use the, the story of the blind man that Jesus, Jesus is walking down a street in Jericho, and there's a blind man, and he calls out, he says, uh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd's kind of embarrassed about this is, you know, this is the blind beggar, and here's Jesus. Just be quiet, quick shouting out. And he shouts out even more, Jesus, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, Call him, have him come here. So he gets up and he gets in the path of Jesus, and Jesus 
heals the blind man. Okay? Spiritual disciplines are like getting up off your backside and getting in the path of Jesus. The spiritual disciplines themselves don't make you holy. Jesus makes you holy. All right? But we don't just sit there as Christians. There are things we do to get in the path of Jesus. Um, some people call spiritual disciplines means of grace. And what, what that means is these things that we do put us in the path of Christ's transforming grace. So we made it clear, baptism doesn't save you. The Lord's Supper doesn't save you. But we do these things to put us in the path of Jesus. Now, the number one spiritual discipline that God uses to transform us and make us more Christ-like is Bible intake. Letting the words of God wash over us and transform us. Let me just remind us of how powerful the Word of God is. Um, first of all, for salvation itself, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You realize what this is saying? The, the, the story of what God has done for us in Christ when explained or read, saves your soul. In fact, Paul even uses the word power. It's the power of God for salvation. Now, God doesn't just leave us saved and then just rotting away. He will transform you and make you more and more like Christ. And what is the primary thing that God uses to Transform us, or the, the theological word is sanctify us. John 17, 17, Jesus is praying for us. And he prays, sanctify them in the truth. What truth? Your word is truth. It is the word of God that God uses to transform us to be more like Christ. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And now he goes on to talk about what else Jesus is going to do for us, the church. That he might sanctify her, clean us up, right? Having cleansed her by the washing of water. What's the water here? with the Word. He's cleaning us up with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Right? So, all that to show you that the Word of God is the agent that God uses to make us more and more like Christ. So, I'm going to give us five statements I almost said this morning, this afternoon, about the Word of God uh, and how to use it uh, to grow and become more and more Christ-like. Okay? Statement one is this. 
Decide to make the treasure yours. Decide to make the treasure yours. You know, I, I think this is a, a, a true statement. There has never been a growing, mature Christian who hasn't chosen to take up the Bible and make it their own by reading it, by studying it, by memorizing it, by interacting with others over it. Now, there are plenty of people happy to go to church and hear the occasional sermon and have a, a general knowledge of the Bible. The, close they get to, the closest they get to quoting it is saying, isn't there a verse somewhere that says, God helps those who help themselves? You know? Um, but as far as saying, I'm going to take it and, and dig in there for treasure and make it my own. Jesus, in, in Matthew 13, he gives a whole bunch of parables, like the parable of the four soils and the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Um, so he gives all these parables. And at the very end, he says this. He said to them, Therefore, every scribe, and some translations put student, so if you're a disciple, you're a student, okay? Therefore, every student who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. What's that? He's saying, if you're a disciple, you should be like a rich man who has a big house and he brings out some days that from the Old Testament and other days that from the New Testament and these are his treasures. Have you ever heard of a guy named Forrest Fenn? Anybody know about Forrest Fenn? Okay, so Forrest Fenn, he died recently, um, but he was a rich man and he lived out in the Rocky Mountains. And he, um, he wanted people, he wanted to motivate people to get outside. Get off their phones and get off their computers and get outside and explore the Rocky Mountains. So he took a million dollars worth of gold coins and put them in a box, locked up the box, and hid the box somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, which it's a big area, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico. But then he wrote a cryptic poem as the treasure map. And if people could figure it out, they would be able to find where he buried this treasure. And apparently, hundreds of thousands of people went on a treasure hunt. Okay. And just recently, somebody found the treasure. Okay. What, what if you did some online research on, uh, I don't know, what's that program where you do ancestor research and you find out that um, in your town, a forest fen-like person buried a million dollars worth of treasure. And as you, you do some more research, 
you find out that the X is on your property. There's a million dollars worth of treasure buried in your backyard. Would any of you go, yeah, that would require me getting off the couch and turning off the TV and I might miss some Netflix, so I'm not going to dig. Jesus says, in between the front and the back cover of your Bible is treasure. We, we just finished um, Ecclesiastes, where the richest man in the world said, the riches didn't, they don't mean anything to me. But you know what the treasure is? The words of God. He ends with, uh, you know, be careful of adding anything more to them. But what satisfied Solomon was the treasure of the words of God. All right? So, have you, have you made that mental heart move where, where you have embraced the Word of God as your own? Or is it, I'll go to church, I'll, you know, I'll listen, but I'm not going to really dig myself. Okay, so that's, that's step one. It's a heart change. Okay, second thing. Decide to schedule daily time to read and meditate on Scripture. Okay, decide to set aside some time to meditate and read Scripture. Okay, now, um, if you're already doing this and you have a plan, that's great. Okay, I, I hate it when, uh, like if you listen to a preacher or a ministry and they go, stop what you're doing and do it my way. Uh, no, if, you, if you're already doing that, good, good on you. Okay, if you, on the other hand, say, I'm really not doing that, and I would like to start to do that. And I occasionally get the question, Pastor, where, where do I start? If I wanted to start a Bible reading plan, um, where should I start? And the question is, um, do you start in the Old Testament and Genesis and just keep going through? Or should I start in the New Testament and people give different answers? Here, here's my answer, okay? Um, I would start in the New Testament. Colossians says this about the things uh, of, of Israel, their, their festivals and some of the, the practices they did. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, I think the NIV says, the reality belongs to Christ. So here's, here's my thought. Um, would you rather watch movie trailers or actually see the movie? Okay. Now, I'd, if, I, if there were Old Testament professors here, they would shoot me. They would go, you just equated the Old Testament to movie trailers. You're not giving it the... No, my, my point is not to downplay the Old Testament. My point is, look at the reality of what it's pointing to and meet Jesus there, and then let's go back and see the fullness of the whole picture. Okay, so I would say start in the New Testament. Now, let me just walk us through the Bible real quickly here, okay? Uh, in the New Testament, it starts with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. 
And that, that simply means they're like one another. Some people start to read it, and they read Matthew, and they go, wow, I learned a lot about Jesus. Now let's read Mark. Wait a minute. These guys are just repeating each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, not exactly. I mean, they've got different material rearranged, but it's kind of the same stories and parables over, and Luke is the same way, okay? So I would say this. If you want to, just to get an overview, pick one of the Gospels, and then go to John. Now, John is one of the four Gospels, but it's completely different than the first three. John was Jesus' best friend. So there's a, there's a reason to read it. And in John's Gospel, there's a lot more personal interactions between Jesus and individuals. He has this long conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee. He has a long conversation with a woman from Samaria, the woman at the well. He has a long conversation with a lame man at a pool, with a blind man in, in uh, chapter 9, with Mary and Martha as Lazarus dies, with the disciples in the upper room for chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, five chapters of him talking to uh, the apostles. So that's John, all right? And here you're learning about Jesus. If you want to know where to start, start in the Gospels. Okay, then the book of Acts. What's the book of Acts? It's, okay, Jesus dies, he raises from the dead, he ascends into heaven, and then it's the apostles left. The first 12 chapters are the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem and surrounding areas. And then 13 through 28 is the apostle Paul getting on ships and sailing all over the Roman world and starting churches. Now, the next books, called the Letters, are the Apostle Paul, his actual letters that he wrote to a bunch of these different churches. We actually have the letters that Paul wrote uh, to different churches. Romans is kind of the big theological treatise on the gospel. You want to master Romans, okay? Um, actually, Ephesians... Philippians, Colossians, and then drop down to Philemon. Those are called the prison epistles. They were written by Paul in jail for his preaching of the gospel. That's what we're studying in youth group, the prison epistles. Um, First and Second Timothy and Titus, those are called the pastorals. He's writing to fellow pastors, Timothy and Titus. Titus. Okay? Now, the bottom books are called the general letters. Hebrews, the Peters, and John. John same guy who write, wrote John, wrote the first, second, and third. John and Jude. Those are general letters written by these guys to all churches. Fun fact, James and Jude are not apostles, but who are they? Brother, the brothers of Jesus. And then you're all dying to read Revelation, aren't you? So we, we had a little, we just finished a book with the ladies over at, at uh, Heritage Woods, and we said, what do you want to study next? And Revelation, can you imagine doing a Bible study with 90-year-old ladies on the book of Revelation? <laughs> uh, here's my little hint on the book of Revelation. Everybody wants to read it and go, ah, oh, this is what's happening right now, right now, Okay. The, the locusts coming out of the pit, and then they have these stinger, those are stinger missiles coming from Black Hawk helicopters. 
Here's what I would say. First ask, what did it mean? How, how does it line up with what's already been written in the Old Testament? All right, get your, get your symbolism from references to the Old Testament before you then apply it to what's going on in the news. Okay? Now, what about, what about the Old Testament? Well, here's, here's kind of the key. Genesis through Esther are called the history books. And that gives you the storyline of the Old Testament. Genesis is about beginnings. The beginning of the world, God creates the world. And the beginning of Israel. He chooses a guy named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, through you, you're going to have lots of descendants. And a Messiah is going to come through you. Okay, so it's the book of beginnings. And Israel ends up in slavery down in Egypt. So God sends Moses. And he delivers them from slavery. And that's the book of Exodus. All right? And then uh, we'll, we'll skip ahead to the book of Joshua. That's Joshua leading the people into the promised land, and they conquer the land. Then there's Judges. Judges is a book where, in essence, Israel commits idolatry, and they fall into horrible sin, and God allows the, uh, the neighboring nations to war against them, and God raises up a judge, but it's a time of depravity. Okay, First and second Samuel, God raises up the first First king, Saul, bad guy. Next king, David, good guy. All right, story of David, First and Second Samuel. Then all the rest of the kings, First and Second Kings. And then First and Second Chronicles redoes the whole thing again. Okay? And at one point, Israel becomes so depraved that God allows another nation, Babylon, to come in and take them into captivity. But then in Nehemiah uh, and... Uh, Esther, did they miss? Uh, oh, Ezra, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, it's the story of the people returning to Israel. And Esther is a story about a queen who is in Persian captivity. But that's the whole storyline of the Old Testament. Really, it's the story of a, a, a promised Messiah coming in the midst of lots of failure of God choosing the people and them failing and failing and failing, but there's a hope of a Redeemer, of a, of a Savior coming. All right? Then there's the poetry books. We just studied Ecclesiastes. There's the, uh, the book of Psalms. Um, these are wis this is wisdom literature, um, sometimes rehearsing the history of Israel, but, but a lot of times just giving God's wisdom and praising God for who he is. And then you've got the major prophets and the minor prophets. You know what they are? Yeah, some of them are predicting the future coming Messiah, but most of the, of the prophets are, uh, is God calling his people back to him. Okay, the prophets are saying, come back to me. Stop doing this, repent of that, come back to me, and there is the prediction of a, a future Messiah. So there you go. There's an overview of the entire Bible. I'd start in the new. If you're already familiar with it, then maybe, maybe going through that outline will help you uh, place the books uh, in, in some semblance of order. Okay. Now, let me read the first psalm. Because there's a difference between just 
reading the Bible and meditating on the Bible. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So, um, blessed is the guy who doesn't hang out with those who are, are scoffing, sinning, uh, wicked people. That's not your, your uh, go-to group. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, meditating is different than reading. Okay? Meditating is really slowing down and thinking about something. Okay? I do this when I go out for my daily run or walk. I'm usually meditating on a sermon. Okay? But I'm thinking, wait a minute, how does this verse go with this verse? And how does that apply to my life? And uh, it, it's, it's not just I read it, I'm done. It's I'm applying it. And, think, and I can't remember what language it's in, but the, the word meditate is the same word for a cow chewing its cud. So, and, and every time I read that illustration, I, I hear a different thing. Some people say, well, cows have two stomachs. And one said, no, cows have four stomachs. And one said, cows have seven stomachs. And they keep regurgitating the grass. And oh, I, I don't need to know all that. <laughs> I just need to know that a cow is just always chewing the cud. And, and that says, blessed are you who meditate on God's word. What, what will you be like? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So the, the picture is of a tree planted by a stream. And of course the roots are going down deep into the earth. And even um, in a dry time, it's dry now. You know how I can tell when I, I go on my walk, we have a creek that runs through our neighborhood. There's not an ounce of water in that creek. It's dry. Okay, But, but here, even in dry times, there's enough water in this creek that this tree is always going to be lush. That's the picture that God gives us for those who meditate on the Word of God day and night. And, and you know what? This is probably the hardest generation to, to actually practice this, this discipline of meditation. You know why? Because of this. So much easier to be entertained by this. Or you get a text, you get a beep, you get an email. Do, 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 the distraction, distraction. So the, the, the practice of meditating requires us to put this aside or, or at least maybe just have it open to the Scripture right? and not be distracted all right. So, um, point one, embrace the treasure. Point two, 
make time every day uh, to read and meditate. And maybe your reading time is, you know, set your 15 minutes whenever you're going to do it. But then maybe set another time when you go out for a walk to meditate on the Scripture. All right? So I'm going to move ahead to point number three, which is this. Decide to obey it. Okay? So um, up to this point, you can go, all right, I embrace it. And I'm going to study it, and I'm going to meditate on it, and I'm going to memorize it. Don't forget obeying it. Okay? Look at this Hebrews passage. He says, about this we have much to say. He's been talking about Christ and his relationship to Melchizedek, an Old Testament priest. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That's an insult. Okay? You're dullards, he says. You're slow. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He's calling them babies. Right? For everyone who lives on milk... Now notice what he does here. First he's talking about the substance that babies, they live on milk, but grown-ups eat meat. But he's switching from the substance now to the practice. Okay? For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. This is, skill, is, skill is not the substance of the food. Skill is, is putting it to practice. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What's he saying? You need to not just live on milk, but big person food, and the mature person knows how to live it, to apply it, to practice it. Okay? To uh, uh, not just, you know, there are many pastors and many Bible teachers who are great at teaching others the Word of God, but even the basics of living it, they're missing there's stories told about Mark Twain who was talking to a businessman. And um, this businessman was rather ruthless. And he said to Mark Twain, you know, before I die, I would like to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land and I want to climb Mount Sinai and read the Ten Commandments on top of Mount Sinai. And Twain said, I have a better idea. You could stay in Boston and keep them. So, um, I'll give you an example here. Well, let, let, let me move on. I'll save this example for the end. Um, so, so, number three, decide to obey it. What, what have you even heard today that you need to decide to obey? 
Youth, what did you, what, well, we, we had you look at a whole bunch of scripture, but did you learn something today that you need to put into practice? Okay, number, number four, decide to get preached at. And I know grammatically you're not supposed to end a sentence with a preposition, but the NIV does all the time, all right? But um, get preached at. Decide to get preached at. Now, what's, what's going on here? Well, yes... We need the Word of God internalized through meditation and memorization. But God has also ordained that we are to hear the Word of God forcefully and confidently proclaimed at us from outside of us. Okay, There's the internal read-it-yourself, and think about it. But there's also the forceful proclaiming of the Word of God from outside of you. Why is that needed? Well, because our hearts and our heads have an amazing ability to twist and to change and to doubt and to rationalize and to justify what we read ourselves. Therefore, we need the word proclaimed. And that's called preaching. Okay? Now, here's something amazing about preaching. Um, I'm, Josh and I are reading a book right now, maybe you're done, by John Piper. Have I ever mentioned this guy, John Piper? It's the first book he wrote. And it's on preaching. And he, he talks about the amazing supernatural thing that happens when God's Word is preached. Okay? God has chosen to combine the preaching of His Word with the moving of His Spirit. So when those two things combine, a miracle happens. It happens in the heart of the person so they no longer twist and change and doubt and rationalize and justify. In other words, God has chosen to meld the proclaiming of his word and the moving of his spirit so right now, if if God is working, a miracle is taking place. It's not just another informational message on the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is changing hearts. Let me show you just a a handful of places where we see that that God chooses preaching to be the, the primary vehicle that God uses. Maybe I shouldn't say the primary, but a... Uh, a huge vehicle that God uses to change hearts. So here in Acts 2, um, Peter is standing in front of a huge crowd of Jewish people 50 days after that crowd was, was crying, crucify him, crucify him, or some of the people may have been there. And he says to them, he preaches to them, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
why, Peter, would you, why would you be dumb enough to say this? They crucified Jesus. These are the people uh, that, that crucified Jesus. They're going to stone you. You would, you would think the next verse would say, so they picked up stones and they stoned Peter. But look what it says. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter goes, Get baptized. And 3,000 of them have their hearts so changed that they, they make a break with Judaism. They get baptized and they start following Jesus. What did God use? He used the preaching of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit coming and cutting their hearts. So Peter goes on uh, in Acts, and he goes to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius, and he explains the gospel to them. And it says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. God has chosen to combine the proclamation of his word with the supernatural moving of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Acts 16. The Apostle Paul goes to Philippi. It says, One who heard us, and Luke is writing, so he's using the, the pronoun us, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple stuff, purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So she was a Gentile. She was a God-fearer. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And guess what? She believes. And she gets baptized. And she becomes one of the first uh, believers in Philippi. How did it work? Paul did this crazy thing called preaching. And the Holy Spirit changed her heart. Okay? Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How, how does Paul know that they were chosen? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Preached the gospel, and the Holy Spirit came upon you with power. So, um, make sure you get preached at. Now, let me, let me just say this. God has given local churches, we're a local church. Okay, local church simply means, okay, there's the universal church, which is all believers, and then there are local churches where God calls people together to be part of a community. Right? God has given local churches individual pastors, and He works in the heart, in the minds, in, in the mind and the interactions of the pastor to prepare messages that feed that particular flock. Okay. Um, Piper sermons are great. I love them. Listen to them. They're on the internet. They're great. Moody Radio, good stuff on there. 
Uh, pick your pastor out there. Lots of good stuff. You can download all day long. That's all good. But this is weird to say. There's, there's, there's something unique about Valley Brook hearing a Pastor Brian sermon than you as an individual Christian hearing a John Piper sermon. You're part of a flock and God somehow, and I don't know how this all works, but through interacting with you and thinking and praying, and uh, there's a message for you. So, if you're in a local church, you need to make sure if you miss that you get the sermon because it's for you. I don't mean, you know, we've bugged your homes and I preach it at you. I try, ne- I try never to preach it at an individual, Okay. Though sometimes I preach it. No, I don't. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, I don't. Um, so, So imagine this. Let's say you're in a company and um, they they have a staff meeting every Friday. And you've missed the last several staff meetings due to whatever. And um, somebody says to you, hey, they've recorded the staff meeting. Did you want a copy? And you go, no, no. Um, I listened to my brother-in-law as part of a a company. What kind of company? He's a plumber. And I listened to his staff meeting. Well, we're a bank. So I I listened to this kind of random staff meeting, and I'm good. Might you want to listen to the staff meeting for your particular business, okay? So there's a supernatural thing where God places pastors over local congregations and somehow, um, and I'm not claiming infallibility, I'm not claiming a direct line to God, but somehow God has put individual pastors over individual churches and as great as John Piper is, or MacArthur, or you name your favorite preacher, it's not the same as your local guy. And, and um, you know, so, so pastors of small churches have always said this, you know, how do I, how do I compete with the guys on the radio? I mean, they're, they're, they have mega churches and they can spend all week long pre- preparing a sermon and I can't live up to it. People say, you don't sound like Chuck Swindoll. And I would say, you don't have to sound like Chuck Swindoll. You can have a guy who's very inarticulate. But if he's tuned into the Lord and he's preaching through the Scripture, it's a message for you. Okay, enough on that. Um, last thing. Decide to study the Word together. Look at this. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So you're to teach one another. Does that mean we should just pass the microphone around and you come up here next Sunday? And No, I think this is talking about gathering in smaller groups and studying the Word together. Um. I, I look at, at my week. I, I must be the most blessed man in the world. I get to be with you on Sunday. I get to be with the youth group. I have a men's group on Tuesday night. 
where we study the word. I get to teach Romans at, at Moody. I get to uh, go with Rita over to Heritage Woods, and we just started Esther, okay? Um, and you know what? I, I used to think that if I show up, I better do all the feeding. And you know what I've learned? We can just work our way through the Word together and interact with one another. And, and I, uh, I love it. Okay? So we're in Genesis. We've been in Genesis for about a year. I don't know. Um, but so we just hit the passage about Joseph being uh, Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce Joseph and he says, no, I, I can't do this thing that would be a sin against God. And, and that's a, a, a reminder that sin would have been against Potiphar, it would have been against her, but it also would have been against God. So you know what he did? He fled... And you would think it would say he got rewarded for being a righteous man. You know what happens? She accuses him of rape, and he gets thrown in a dungeon and forgotten for years. And that was encouraging. <laughs> Why? Because we're reminded that righteous behavior doesn't always get immediately rewarded. And those going through difficult times, it's a reminder, oh, this isn't out of the ordinary. Just reading that together, um, processing it together is a way that God encourages his saints. Um, this last week, I didn't feel very justified this last week. What do you mean? Well, you know, you're justified in Christ. You're declared righteous because you're a believer in Christ. You ever wake up, you just don't feel that justified you go, Pastor, have you fallen into horrendous sin? No, no. Okay. You just, you just ever just not feel that right. And I got to teach Romans 4 this week. And you know what Romans 4 says? And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And I got to process that verse with a whole bunch of college students and to preach at them and to myself that our standing before God, if we are in Christ, is not based on how we feel or what we do. It's based on what Christ has done for us. Right? And we got to process that together. 1 Peter 4.9. Um, I don't know if I told you this, Rita, but this, we studied 1 Peter uh, with the with the ladies, Elizabeth was there, and we went, were before we had one study. We had we went through our schedule, and we've got we've got this meeting, and then we've got to have these people are coming over, and we've got this Bible study, and there was just a lot, and we kind of were feeling overwhelmed. And when we came home, Elizabeth said, "Boy, that was a convicting study." I go, "What?" First Peter four nine: Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And you know what? I I saw my wife get real happy real quick. And there were people coming over that night. I don't know if it was our kids or, or who it was, but here's a case where we are going through a book of the Bible with 90-year-old ladies and God is using it in our own lives. Okay, So, um, I will stop.
But here's, here's what we covered. Decide to make the treasure yours. For some people, your action point is see it as a treasure. Second thing, decide to schedule daily time to read it and meditate on it. Number three, decide to obey it. Number four, decide to get preached at. Number five, decide to study it together. So let me pray and we'll have the worship team come on up. Lord, thank you for your treasure, your word. And Lord, I pray that you would renew in us a love for it, a desire to know it, to dig into it. And uh, Lord, I pray that, that we would be able to put aside um, the million distractions and meditate on your word. Lord, I pray this would become a habit. We want to be like that tree planted by a stream of water flourishing. And um, Lord, may, uh, may we obey it. May we study it together. May you be glorified um, as we, as your followers, love your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.